All right, our scripture today is from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 8, verses 13 to 23. Uh, you can find that on page 796 in the Pew Bible. Zechariah is not always that easy to find, but it's right at the end of the Old Testament. Um, let me give you just a little context. This starts in the middle of a sentence, middle of a paragraph. It starts with the word and. Um, Zechariah is talking about the judgment that has fallen on Israel, and he's writing to a people after the exile. He's writing to a people who have come back to the land um, and is now turning from the judgment that has passed towards God's faithfulness to bless. I'll give you some more context, but I don't want to keep you standing too long. Uh, but that's where we are. So Zechariah 8, 13 to 23. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Let's pray together as we come to this passage. Father in heaven, I have to confess that, that just now in reading this passage um, did I notice the refrain repeated times, fear not. Uh, and Father, we are a people who come before you with many fears. We are a people who go through life uh, facing many fears. We are a people who struggle uh, to obey that command that you give us not to fear, to be strong and courageous, to be, and because at the core of that command is the command to remember that you are with us, and we struggle to do that. So Father, I pray um, as we are here together uh, that we would be reminded uh, by your word, by your table, uh, by each other's voices and faces uh, that you are with us, that you are in our midst, uh, that you have not forgotten us, that you have not abandoned us, um, that you are faithful 
uh, to all of your promises. I agree with um, the prayers that, that Bryce lifted up uh, earlier out of Psalm 30 um, as, as he spoke both about the challenges of these last three years, but about the faithfulness with which you have acted toward us. Uh, just the unbelievable, lavish grace that you have showered on your people uh, in, in sustaining us. And, and Father, we can, we can add those stories, um, the stories of what's happened to us as a people, uh, as a church, um, and for each of us individually, we can add those stories to the stories that we have in your word um, as we think about what it means for us to not forget your mighty works. Uh, and to set all of our hope on you uh, in order that we can obey your commandments. Um, Father, it's because you've been so gracious to us that we can lift up prayers to you uh, together. It's because you've been faithful um, that we can uh, lift up this vacation Bible school that, that's coming this week and say, please, uh, would you be at work uh, in the hearts of the kids and, and the volunteers and, and everybody who is there? Uh, we are grateful to be able to partner uh, with City Life Church. We thank you for them. We thank you that, that even as a church uh, here in Boston, we're not alone, um, that we can look around and see other churches, um, uh, other uh, men and women made in your image, gathered into groups, uh, praising your name, seeking after you. And, and in this case, we get to partner with them. Uh, and so we give you thanks and we pray uh, for the week ahead, for, for everything from the weather uh, to the logistics and to the timing of things. And, and Father, that your work would be done and your word would be heard and that kids uh, who um, haven't heard of you uh, would hear of you and, and kids that have heard of you a lot might hear of you in a new way, might learn to speak your name uh, in a new way, might, might go home and have things to say to their parents um, about this God uh, who loves to save sinners uh, and who loves to rescue uh, people who can't rescue themselves. Father in heaven, we want to uh, lift all of these things up to you, um, and, and again, we are, um, we're only able to do that. We're only able to come into your presence with confidence and boldness because of the promises that you have made uh, toward us. Um, above all, Father, you have made promises about your word uh, to do your work uh, through it uh, as, we, as we listen to it and as we sit under it. So please... Um, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us and that we would be changed, even in this next 25, 30 minutes. Um, Father, I ask uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable at your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so we are continuing in this series, looking at this theme um, of blessing to the nations, this idea that when God saves a person or a people for himself, he doesn't do it for their sake alone. He does it in order that others would be blessed and others would be saved through them. We, we have seen how this went all the way back to the call of Abram, right? Remember, think back to that very first sermon that Bradley preached where he had you grab the, the, the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis in your, in your hands and say, feel, feel what those pages feel like. And that's the context. That's the context in which Abram is called. It's not a brand new story out of nowhere. Um, rather, it's a story of God who created humanity, um, and all of humanity has fallen. All of humanity is turned away. All of humanity is messed up and is not going to save itself. And so God steps in and calls Abram as a response to that problem. 
So it was always about blessing the nations through Abram. And now we've seen that um, theme work its way through every genre of the Old Testament. Um, this is our last week in the Old Testament, so we've seen it play out uh, in narrative, and we've seen it playing out in the law, in Deuteronomy. Um, we saw it in the prophets, and we're in the prophets again uh, this week. We saw it in the Psalms, right? So every genre, every book of the Old Testament has this, has this same theme. Um, in some ways, it, it, it almost passes over us quickly uh, here. Um, in, in verse 13, I don't know if you noticed this because it's only half of the sentence. In verse 13, God says, I will save you and you shall be a blessing, right? Just boom, boom. As though to say, like, if you've, if you've made it this far, like, if you've read this long, if you've been part of these people for this long, by now you should get it, that God is going to save you and you will be a blessing. That's part of it. That's the whole purpose of God's, of God's salvation. Now, the last verse of our passage um, is one you might have heard before. Right? This, this might sound familiar. Um, it said, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Um, now, if you've only heard that verse by itself, um, there's a danger that you might read that verse uh, kind of triumphalistically, right? In a sense where you, you read it and you say, you know, it sounds like what that's saying is um, that we, the people of God, are just going to be so attractive, right? We're just, gonna, we're just so great. Um, people are just going to love us, right? And they'll be clamoring, you know, to us, you know, take us to church, you know, please. Um, there's two problems with that. One, I don't know what your experience in life is, um, but sometimes that idea is a little hard to line up with the way uh, that, that we actually experience life. But the other, and maybe the more serious problem, is that if we read this verse triumphalistically, right, with the focus on how great we are, there's a real short path from there to pride uh, and to being puffed up. Um, and we've seen what pride does in, in God's people. Right? We saw it just a couple weeks ago when we looked at Jonah. Right? Bradley talked about how Jonah was filled up with pride. He was so proud that when he went and preached judgment against Nineveh, right, um, and they actually repented, they actually turned away from, from their evil and God had compassion on them, it made Jonah angry. Right? You know what it means if you're angry? when you see God be compassionate to someone else, to a friend or to an enemy, if you're angry when you see the compassion of God, it means you don't think you need it. You don't think that you need God's compassion, right? That's where pride uh, takes us. So today I want to consider this verse in its context. This is why I went back as far as I did with this passage, all the way back to 13. Because if we look in the context uh, of, of these verses, it'll keep us from reading this verse triumphalistically, and I think it'll be helpful for us. Um, and in fact, if you want like the sermon just summed up real short, um, here it is. 
these people um, who are being taken hold of, and people are saying, take us with you, because we've heard God is there, these are not people who look great. These are not people who have, have their act together. They're not people who are perfect. They are people who have messed up a lot, and they've been judged for it. And they were, this is why I started at verse 13, they were a byword of cursing among the nations. Right? They were low. But now something has happened. Now God has blessed them. And it is obvious, it is obvious that they are receiving God's blessing, not because of how great they are, but because of how merciful God is, how faithful he is to be merciful. They are objects of mercy. And that's what these people are after. They're saying, we need some of that. Um, what we're going to see in this passage is really three things. And you can think of it all in terms of, of gift. You know, on the one hand, there's the type of people that God calls us to be. Um, and you can think of that as the gift that we are. However, much more importantly is going to be the gift that we have received. So there's the gift that we are and there's the gift that we have received. And then finally, um, once we're talking about gift, of course, there's the giver. Who is the one uh, who, gives, who gives these gifts? So those are the things that we're going to look at. Um, let's look, first of all, um, at the type of people that God calls us to be, the type of people um, that would be drawing others uh, to us and saying, let us go with you. Look at verse, verses 16 and 17. Um, God says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Um, it is a constant refrain throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Um, it is a constant refrain of the prophets. Every time Israel is judged, every time it is explained why judgment is coming, um, their injustice um, is always at the center of it. Um, their failure to love the sojourner and the stranger. They're trampling on the rights of the poor. Um, in the book of Isaiah, here's a passage. We didn't, we didn't look at this passage. Bradley mentioned that there were so many parts of Isaiah that we could have gone to for this theme. Um, so here's a passage that we weren't able to look at. But in Isaiah 58, judgment is coming, and the people are saying, what's going on? Haven't we worshipped you well enough? Are you not paying attention? Here's what they say. This is at the beginning of Isaiah 58. They say, why have you fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Then God answers, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. And he goes on, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke? to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Um, 
This is not much different from the point that Bradley made last week um, about how Ezekiel um, defined the sins of Sodom. You know, what was it that Sodom was really judged for? Bradley read this last week. Let me, let me read it again. And I, and I just, I gotta tell you, as, a, as an American Christian, um, this hits pretty hard, right? Uh, Ezekiel says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Um, our tradition is full um, of voices that have spoken this message, that God is a God who loves justice and who wants his people to recognize that to the extent that they have been given more than they need, um, it is for the purpose of caring, those, caring for those who don't have any. Um, John Calvin, um, I, I could have filled about an hour just reading John Calvin, probably more, actually. His sermons were long. Um, I chose one, just one quote. Here, here's from his commentary on 2 Corinthians. Calvin said, those who have riches whether inherited or won by their own industry and labor, are to remember that what is left over is not meant for intemperance or luxury, but for relieving the needs of the brethren. One of the things that God calls us to be, which is meant to be beautiful, which is meant to be attractive, which is meant to draw people to us, is a people who recognize that what we have been given has not been given for our own sakes alone, but in order to give on. Um, the other thing that is in those verses that I read, verses 16 to 17, about the kind of people we're supposed to be, um, are these comments about truth and peace. Um, speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true uh, and make for peace. And then at the end of verse 19, love, truth, and peace. We are meant to be a people uh, of truth and peace. Have you ever noticed, though, that truth and peace, sometimes it feels like it's hard to get those two things to go together. Uh, sometimes it feels like there are certain truths um, that we can't tell. There are certain hard, true things that we can't say because they'll be divisive, because they'll be polarizing, because they'll, they'll disturb the peace. This can be true of us as individuals, about our own lives. Um, maybe it's even more true when it's about things that have happened inside of the church. And we worry that by telling the truth uh, about what's really hard about being together um, and being a church together, we'll disturb the peace, we'll just divide each other. Uh, and so we hold silent, we feel pressure uh, to stay silent. Um, you know, the other week, we were at Bradley's house um, for the, the latest Micah 6-8 um, initiative gathering, and we talked about some hard things. Um, we had some good conversations, and there was, there was one comment that was made that I found really encouraging, or at least setting out the kind of vision, like where, where we're trying to get to. Someone said, you know, we will be a really robust community when we can disagree with each other well. 
And someone said, it might have been the same person or someone else, I forget, amended that to when we can fight well, when we can fight well with each other, when we can say hard things to each other um, and not have that destroy the unity that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ and members of his body. Um, you know, if you ask yourself, why is it that it can be difficult to tell the truth for fear of disturbing the peace, for fear of, of dividing? Um, this is where I think the context of these verses is, is so important, because, because could it be, could it be that the reason for that is that we are grounding our identity, our sense of who we are uh, as a people, on the idea that we're pretty good people? Um, that we've pretty much got our act together, um, that there aren't really hard and painful things that we would need to deeply repent of to God and to one another? Could it be that our identity is grounded so much on our being beautiful in and of ourselves that we can't tell truths that would disturb that illusion? Um, this is why the context here is so important. Um, God is saying, as a result of this blessing, and, and, and if, you, if you can be people who are seeking after justice and who are telling the truth and who know peace, then yes, it's going to be the case that others are going to be coming alongside of you and saying, take us with you. We want what you have. But the context here, again, uh, is not that they have always had their act together and that they've always gotten everything right. It's just the opposite. It is that they have failed and failed badly. Um, failed so badly that all of those curses uh, that they were told would be coming uh, have, have come true. They were taken into exile. Uh, and, now, and now they're back. But what I want you to see is how the hope and the encouragement in this passage is driven by God's faithfulness to what he said he would do. Do you notice the, the, the way he phrases this? He says, just as, this is verse 14, just as I purposed to bring disaster to you, so again, skipping to 15, now I've purposed in these days to bring good. So just as surely as I said judgment was coming, and it did, so now I am saying that blessing is coming, and it will. And it's on the strength of his character that we can have hope. What God is saying here um, is that he is being faithful to exactly what Moses said would happen. Way, 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 way back in Deuteronomy, right? At the very end of Deuteronomy, um, you know, Deuteronomy is this, this final speech that Moses makes, right? Before the people enter into the promised land, he, he retells their whole story. He puts the law in front of them. He says, if you obey this law, things will go well with you. If you do not there will be judgment. And after that, after, after laying out these blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience, he says, now, when, not if, but when all of that comes upon you, the blessing and the curse, because you are going to get it wrong. Um, what he says in Deuteronomy 30 is, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then 
the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, and he will have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And what God is saying here is, it's happening. I am being faithful to that promise. Um, the language in which he talks about this turn from cursing into blessing um, is really strong, but, but, but you, you, you're liable to miss it. I almost skipped over. I almost uh, thought, you know, for the sake of time, we could skip over verses 18 and 19, talking about these fasts in the different months. I thought, that's, that's too obscure, it's too arcane. But then, then I looked up what those are actually referring to, like what that actually is. Um, you can read about this in just one chapter of the Bible. If you go to 2 Kings 25, okay, 2 Kings 25, it's the very end of 2 Kings, which means it is, it is the end of the story that leads to exile, okay? That's, that's where 2 Kings ends, is with the people being taken into exile. So it's, it's like the final crisis, everything falling apart. And what you read there um, in 2 Kings 25 is that in the 10th month of one year, Jerusalem was placed under siege. And then the next year, in the fourth month, the walls were breached. In the fifth month, the city fell. In the seventh month, their governor was assassinated. Right? These are the painful events that led directly to them being taken into exile. Um, it is possible, uh, depending on just how early Zechariah is writing this, you know, how soon after they're back from exile, it is, it is possible that there might be people alive listening to him who remember these things happening, right? They would have been small children. Um, but for everybody, these are recent, these are raw. It is, it is scandalous, right? Think about the audacity to say the very things that were the most painful moments in your history are going to become occasions for joy. They'll no longer be fasts, they will be feasts. Because you'll set them within the overarching frame of a bigger story. Not a story of going into exile, but a story of being redeemed. A story of being forgiven. A story of being objects of mercy. And I kind of want to pause and ask you to think in your own hearts, what are the events in your life where it's hard to do that? What, what, are the, what are the things that are sources of pain for you where it's almost scandalous for me to suggest or for you to even imagine that they could become occasions of joy if set in a larger story of a God who saves? This is the context for the idea that ten men from the nations of every tongue are going to take hold of the robe of a Jew and say, take us with you, right? This is, this is what they're seeing. They're seeing people who are objects of mercy, people who are able to rejoice in the very things that cause them most pain. And they're saying, how is that possible? What is going on there? Who do these people know? Um, because that... That, of course, is, is the real main thing that we have to see in this passage. Um, not just the gift that we are or the gift that we've received, but the giver, the one who makes this possible. That last word of the whole passage, it says, we have heard that God is with you. 
He changed that just a little bit to God with us. And we know that word, right? This is Emmanuel. That's what they're saying. Let us go with you because we've heard of Emmanuel. Um, the fact that God, out of fidelity to his promises, was with us. That he came alongside of us. And when we look at Jesus, when we look at our God having taken on our nature, having taken on flesh in order to bear our scars and our sin, we see one who not only pursued justice, but who was the very justice of God. Paul says he's the just and the justifier. He is the place where God's justice and mercy come together, uh, not in conflict, but in perfect embrace. We see the one who said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said, I give you peace. And notice in John 14, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you. He is not offering us the kind of peace that is, that is fragile and that can be disturbed by inconvenient truths. It's not a thin veneer of peace. It is a deep, robust peace because it is grounded on the love and faithfulness of a God who sent his son into the world to die for the world in order to save it, knowing how we would fail him, knowing how his people would fail him. This is what makes us beautiful as a people. This, this is what will draw people, is if Jesus is lifted up, if Jesus' name is on our lips. Our prayer as a people is always to look more and more like him. Um, so what do we do with this? Let me close with just a few ideas of what it is that we can do. Um, how, how, we can, how we can apply this passage in our lives. Um, the first thing is to be reminded um, of the fact that the hard things in our life can be the very things through which God is at work. Um, I want to be clear. Um, our situation and the people who went into exile is not the same. Okay, What they experienced was judgment. Um, it wasn't eternal judgment, but it was judgment all the same. And Paul is really clear that now, in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, right? So we don't have to fear judgment from God. However, we do experience his discipline. That's a very different thing. Um, and that could be a whole other sermon, right? The difference between judgment and discipline. But we do experience God's discipline in our lives, where he shapes us and molds us into his character, um, including through the hard things and the suffering that we experience. And again, I want to ask you, what, what are those things where you struggle to believe that God is present in the midst of this suffering? Um, the second thing uh, that we can do is, is talk to each other about those things, to tell the truth, even the hard truths about those things. I, I, I agree, we're going to be a more robust community the more we're able to disagree with each other well. Um, and I've been really encouraged in some recent gatherings where I feel like we're starting to see that happen. Um, we're starting to be able to say hard things to each other. But listen, if you don't have a place where you're plugged in already into community, into other people at this church where you can talk to them about the hard things, 
um, the suffering, the places where you, you want to say this is God's discipline, but you're not even sure he's there. Um, I want to encourage you to find that. Um, it's our challenge as a church to open those spaces up, right, um, to make those spaces available. Um, the third thing that I want to say that we need to, to do um, in application uh, from this is, is simply what we're doing now. Um, the thing that makes it hard to tell the truth is when we build our identity on the idea that we're pretty good people. And one of the points of worship is to break that illusion week after week after week to be reminded that we are not here because we're good people, but because we're God's people, right? He calls us into his presence, and he is a God who loves to save sinners, which is what we are, sinners in need of salvation, sinners who have known his salvation, sinners who need to keep being reoriented uh, towards him. That happens when we read his word, and it happens at this table too. Um, so as we're coming now to this table uh, to be fed a meal uh, that we have not earned and that we don't deserve, um, let me pray for us as we come and let's pray together.